I was talking to a Christian woman. That's all right, Elise. It's just I just needed new new batteries in the guitar. Yeah, it's all right. I'll do it. Uh, I was talking to a Christian woman a while ago. Uh, she was divorced and remarried, and she's very happy now. Uh, both her husband and her ex-husband are Christian, uh, but she says that the two marriages were completely different. Her first marriage looked fine from the outside. Uh, but there were things going on that she didn't elaborate on to me uh, and she ended up having to leave that marriage for her safety. Uh, and now she says she's remarried and she's in a real partnership with her second husband, uh, the, the way marriage should be. The two marriages look the same from the outside, fine, respectable Christian marriages, but from the inside it was a different story. And that's what Paul is describing here in Romans 7 and 8. Uh, he's describing the inside workings of two different marriages. One woman who's married at different times to two different husbands. And the two marriages looked pretty similar on the outside. Uh, but when you look at what's going on in the inside, they're completely different. Have a look at what Paul's describing in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So that's the situation Paul wants us to think about. A woman's married, then her first husband dies, she's released from her obligations to him, and she's free to marry again. And Paul's point is that's what it's like for his Jewish brothers. You can see in verse 1 that he's talking to the Jews. Brothers, or brothers and sisters in Matty's version, I'm speaking to men who know the law, to people who know the law. Now jump down to verse 4. Here's his point. Here's how the illustration applies to his Jewish brothers and sisters. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So these are Jewish Christians. Husband number one was the law, before they became Christians. And now husband number two is Jesus. Uh, two different marriages at different times of their life that looked similar from the outside. Jew and Christian. Fine, moral, law-abiding people. But when you looked at what was happening on the inside, it's a very different story. Uh, verse 5 and 6, verse 5 summarises what the first marriage is like before they became Christians. Verse 6, the second, after. Have a look at it. And these are two fairly crucial verses for the whole next 30 or so verses. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, that's looking back, Paul includes himself in that. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit to death. Verse 6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. One marriage, then a death, then a remarriage. That's the quick sketch, verses 5 and 6. That's the summary Paul goes, uh, what he, Paul goes on to do from verse 7 is, is to describe in detail what those two marriages are like. 
The rest of chapter 7 describes that first marriage when Paul, uh, when, when, uh, before the Jews became Christian and then the second half of, verse, of chapter 8, sorry, the first half of chapter 8 describes this second marriage. So first up, the first marriage, what it means to be married to the law. He said in verse 5, the law arouses sinful passions and that it leads to death. Now that was a big statement for a Jew to make. It was a shocking statement for a Jew to hear because the law is God's word. The law reflects God's perfect holiness. Obeying God's law leads to life. And so Paul thinks of the rhetorical question, or he asks the rhetorical question, the question his hearers are asking. Uh, Does that mean there's something wrong with the law? Verse 7, what shall we say then? Are you saying the law is sin? He asks the question that the Jew might be answering and then he gives the answer, speaking as a Jew. Firstly, he says, what's good about the law? Uh, Verse 7, certainly not, I'm not saying the law is sin. I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But here's the problem, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The Jewish law is good because it points out what's sinful, like coveting, wanting something that's not yours. But the problem is, as soon as the law says, don't touch the wet paint, what does our nature do? We we just can't help touching it, can we? A friend was telling me about working in a microbiology lab. Uh, All sorts of precautions against spreading infection. And one of those was a big sign that said, caution, do not lick your lips. I guess it increased the chance of infection spreading or ingesting it. Uh, And now, of course, you don't even think about licking your lips until you see the sign. But my friend said by the end of the day, he would have licked his lips so much they they were cracked. He just couldn't stop licking his lips. Now, that's Paul's point about the law. It arouses all sorts of sinful passion by telling you what you shouldn't do. Look there in verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. God gave the law to Israel so that they'd obey it and live But the sinful nature chooses to reject God's law, to to go our own way rather than God's way. And so the the good law actually brings a bad outcome. It brings death instead. Well, verse 13, Paul asks another rhetorical question. Uh, The next question that the Jew might be asking him. So are you saying that the good law is itself bad? Is Is the law sin? It's similar to the question he asked in verse 7. And then from verse 14, he he answers that question. He goes into more detail of how that works, how a good law can produce sin and death instead of life. Now, he's speaking as uh, as if it's him, but I think he's actually playing the part. Uh, He's asked the rhetorical question based on uh, speaking with the voice of the Jew, and I think he keeps speaking in that voice. 
Now, before I launch into verse 14, I just want to stop and recognise that many people here think that Paul is talking uh, about his present experience as a Christian. But for the reasons I think I've shown in the first part of the chapter, I'm saying it's describing Paul's Jewish experience, this first marriage. Uh, he'll, he'll get to what his present experience is like in chapter 8. So, verse 14, he's answering his rhetorical question. The law is good, it's just that it arouses sin and produces what's bad. Uh, here's the problem for the Jew, verse 14, someone in that first marriage. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. You see, the good Jew wants to keep God's law, Sometimes he does, but he, he just keeps failing. Uh, jump down to halfway through verse 18. I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what, I, for what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Or a bit further down in verse 22. The Jew loves God's law. He genuinely wants to keep it. But the problem is there's, there's a civil war going on inside him and he can never win. It's a war between his mind that wants one thing and his body that wants another. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, in my flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my flesh or within my members. Now, that's describing the first marriage, what the Jewish Christian used to be under before he became a Christian. He, he was a prisoner, a slave, powerless to do the good he wanted to do. Why would you want to stay in that? Verse 24, he, he summarises, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? What's the solution to that first marriage? A mind that wants one thing, but a, a body that naturally does the opposite. Well, Paul answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, he's the one who will rescue me. And then he sums up what he said so far, finishing his investigations into the inner workings of that first marriage, uh, of the Jew married to the law, this battle. Uh, verse 26, uh, uh, verse 25. So then, I... Uh, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law and in a simple nature a slave to the law of sin. And so we come to chapter 8 where Paul starts to describe what this second marriage is like, the inner workings of a second marriage because Paul's been set free from that first marriage. Remember the contrast. He's expanding on verses uh, verse 5 and 6 from chapter 7. So remember... Uh, back up at the start of chapter 7, verse 5, you used to be controlled by the sinful nature. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law that we may serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The old way, the old body could never keep the law. What's the solution? Uh, the solution is God's spirit. Uh, promised all the way through the Old Testament that God will pour out his spirit uh, and give a new covenant. 
When you become a Christian, God's spirit comes into you and gives you a new heart. And by his spirit, you're actually set free from your old body of death. Uh, So over in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul goes on to describe this second marriage. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In the old marriage, the law just condemned because people couldn't obey it. But that's not in the new, na- new marriage. There's no condemnation now that we're in our second marriage for those who are in Jesus. How does that happen? How are we set free from condemnation? Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, first marriage, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. The law could never make us right with God. The sinful nature couldn't keep it. But God did it when he sent Jesus to die. Uh, God made us right with him. Jesus kept the law. Jesus took the law's punishment. And so instead of the law condemning us, first marriage, God condemns sin in us. Uh, That's what happens in the second marriage. And then look at what verse 4 says about what that means for us. He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. That's the outcome of what God does for us in Jesus. I think we expect to see so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in Jesus. But it says the requirements of the law are met in us. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I think there's two ideas. Uh, Firstly, because Jesus took the law's punishment, Jesus met the requirements of the law, and because he's our representative and because we're connected to Jesus, we meet the requirements of the law. Jesus died, and so we died to satisfy God's justice. So in that sort of sense, Jesus, we're declared righteous, Uh, We meet the law's requirements. But there's another aspect to do with our sanctification, our growth in godliness. Uh, God's given us his spirit. We are actually able to begin to obey the law's requirements. We can actually do what God desires. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We've been set free. We have a genuine free will that can obey rather than one which is enslaved to sin. And I think that that's the aspect that Paul's thinking about here. We meet the righteous requirements of the law by obeying God. You can see that that's what he's getting at because of how he goes on to describe those people in the the second part of verse 4. The people who meet the righteous requirements of the law, verse 4, are those who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. It's in our living that God's people meet the righteous requirements of the law. Not perfectly, but we can begin to do it because we have the power of God's spirit. It actually says, uh, walk according to the spirit. Uh, Christians walk through life. We make decisions based on what pleases God's spirit. We're guided and strengthened by him. 
uh, because he's given us a new heart. Uh, we are able to meet God's requirements. Paul goes on to describe what that looks like when we're walking according to the Spirit. He describes it in terms of a partnership. Uh, the first marriage was about this internal warfare between our mind and our body. But now, with the Spirit, we're actually in partnership rather than fighting. Uh, verse 5 and 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the, that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, there's a partnership there. Our job is to set our minds on the things that the Spirit desires. We're to make a conscious decision to fix our attention on one thing, uh, to make a positive choice, uh, not just try not to do the wrong thing, choose the good thing. Turn off the TV, throw out the DVDs, get off the couch, walk away from that conversation or that joke. Uh, think before you speak, pray before you respond, choose to forgive rather than complain. Set your minds on the things the Spirit desires. Uh, buy treasure in heaven, not treasure that rusts, gets stolen, breaks down or disappoints. Uh, visit Reformers Christian Bookshop and buy a basket of books and then actually read them. Uh, podcast some sermons and actually listen to them. Support a missionary and actually read their newsletter. Get excited by what they're doing and actually pray for them. Set your minds on the things the Spirit desires. That's your part. And God's part is that his Spirit controls your mind. We're choosing, but God's Spirit is at work cooperating with us, at work in our minds. As we do our part, God does his part. As we set our minds on what the Spirit desires, God directs our minds more and more. Verse 13 says, by the Spirit, uh, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. There's a cooperation and an empowering that the Christian life's about. We're strengthened as we recognise that God's at work in us. The reality is we don't have to sin anymore. Our nature is renewed. We are able not to sin. Not perfectly, not permanently, but we are able to please God. Uh, that's the cooperation of Christian living, which is this second marriage, rather than the first marriage, which was about this internal warfare. That's what your life is like if you're a Christian, cooperating with God's spirit. Uh, he's the key to living the life that God intends, uh, a life that's genuinely able to keep God's law. Look at verse 10. Uh, this picture describes you. If Christ is in you, uh, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Uh, there's resurrection power available for you and for me. It's not just talking about life into eternity, it's talking about life right now. God wants us to be living 
and recognising and claiming that power from his spirit. What's interesting, we've been all the way through chapter 7 and all the way through to chapter 8 without any commands, without any instructions about what we're to do until we get to verse 12. Uh, Is all of this some irrelevant argument from history? The reality is we're not Jews. We were never quite like the Jews in that first marriage. But we were still dead. Uh, We were still incapable of pleasing God without his spirit. And yet now, if we're joined to Jesus, we have an obligation to our new husband. Uh, We have a motivation to please the spirit who is in us. Uh, Those of you who are married, there are all sorts of blessings that come from being married, but there are also obligations to your spouse. Uh, And it's no different when it comes to being married to Christ. So verse 12, we get this first instruction. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if we live according to the sinful nature, uh, if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's our obligation, to put to death those old ways, to put to death the misdeeds of the body and instead to set our minds on what the Spirit desires. It won't be easy. It's not easy. Many of us who've been for... Christians longer than a few weeks (laughs) will know it's not easy. But Paul is saying it's possible. Obedience, meeting the requirements of the law won't be easy, but it is possible because we have God in us, uh, Christ and his spirit at work. We have an obligation to his spirit, not an excuse. And I love how this passage finishes. It's talking about how Paul feels about his being in this second marriage compared to the first. And Paul describes it as like being a son compared to being a slave. So look at verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. uh, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by that spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God's Spirit helps us live a life of obedience, but that's not all. God gives us, God's Spirit gives us an assurance that we're children, his children. There's a big difference between being a slave and a son. And we've been set free, released as a slave, and we're now sons and daughters. What does it mean to be set free? Well, it means you've been set free from being condemned, from condemnation. Uh, You've been set free from feeling guilty. You've been set free from doubting, set free from fearing, set free from failure, from death, from frustration. Uh, We are free sons and daughters, free to bear fruit, free to uh, fully meet the requirements of the law free to please our Heavenly Father, free with joy and purpose and perspective and fulfilment. Let's go into this week recognising our freedom as sons and daughters. We're not slaves. We've been rescued from our body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing passage, so much in it that
we can't touch on tonight, but uh, wonderful truths about, uh, for those of us who are Christian, what we once were and what we now are. Uh, help us to recognise your spirit at work in us. Help us to rejoice in being your sons and daughters. Help us to cooperate with your spirit uh, that we might meet the righteous requirements of the law. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.